This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we are joined by Donna Rubin to share the new book, Speaking While Female, 75 Extraordinary Speeches by American Women. Welcome to the show, Donna. Thank you, Christina. I'm really happy to be here. I am so glad that you're here and that you're going to share this exciting new book with us. But before we dive into all of that, will you please tell us about yourself? Yes, thank you. I was a journalist for a long time. I worked in newspapers and magazines, and I did that in the U.S., and I also lived in London for quite a long time and traveled around Europe. So I my orientation is towards journalism, and that means I'm very interested in fact-based, evidence-based arguments. I'm, I'm interested in synthesizing and distilling information and explanatory journalism. So that's, that's my foundation. And then uh, I really uh, made a switch in my career and transitioned into speech writing. I, I have worked as a speech writer for 20-something years, and I've written for all kinds of leaders in the corporate sector, the nonprofit sector, writing speeches and other materials that help that individual convey their point of view and persuade. It was as a speech writer that I got very involved in the whole world of speech writing. I ran a group for a very long time here in New York for speech writers. And for about 10 years, I've been a judge for an annual speech writing contest. So that's how I got interested in the world of women's oratory. My background is, you know, led me to this position, but it was a step-by-step journey along the way. And I'm curious about that journey. This is a fascinating field that you've gone into, but what led you into the field? When did you know this was for you? Well, in, I, I, in terms of when I was a very young person, I was always interested in history. I was, even as a kid, I was interested in knowing what came before. And I grew up in a part of the country, in the part of the United States, that where they tear down all the old buildings and put up 
brand new ones. I'm from Texas and the cities in Texas are quite nice, but they're quite modern. And I was always yearning for the past. I wanted to know what was there before. I would read about the past and go look up historic spots. So it's really quite ironic that all these years later, I've come full circle and I work in an area that involves digging up the past. Um, I do have an undergraduate degree in history and I have a master's degree in English literature. So the work that I do now is really it's all of a piece with the personality that that I that I came with, <laughs> the package that I came with. And um, it's really a joy for me to be working in that area right now. And that leads to my next question is, and I know a lot of it's covered in the introduction, but um, will you share with us what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, there were a number of different strands that led to it, I would say. One is that I, as also as part of my work, I do a lot of speech coaching. I teach public speaking, and I particularly focus on women. I do teach all kinds of people. Men and women all benefit from this training, of course. Men and women um, all make outstanding speakers, but they all come with lack of confidence or uncertainty about speaking. They all need help in various ways. But what I noticed from my years of coaching and leading workshops is that in general, in aggregate, more women than men lack confidence and more women than men need support to learn how to step forward, to come forward and put their ideas into the world. More women than men tend to have difficulty calling themselves experts, thinking of themselves as subject matter experts, and putting that knowledge into the world. So I began to think about the whole issue of speech in a gendered way, in a male-female way. And um, I also, at the same time, began to get very annoyed, very irritated when I would see quotes by Winston Churchill all the time. Constantly in the speeches that I was reading, the I subscribed to a number of digests of speeches. I, I edit speeches and I... Um, judge speeches in a speech writing contest. And I would see all these quotes by Winston Churchill. And I would think, you know, I know he was a great statesman and orator. I admire his rhetoric very much. And I have studied it and read it and have tremendous appreciation for him. But I couldn't figure out why people were always quoting Winston Churchill. And then I started to notice that a preponderance of references were to male speakers, not just Churchill, but to all the men who were in the so-called pantheon of great speakers across time. So I'm referring to people like Abe Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, and Frederick Douglass, and um, of course, more, more contemporary speakers, Mahatma Gandhi, and then of course, people like JFK and R, his brother RFK and MLK, Martin Luther King and Ronald Reagan and even Billy Graham. I would see over and over and over references to male speakers and I would wonder, weren't there great women speakers in history? Where, where are all the great women speakers? So that's really uh, what I think of as the inciting incident. If any of your listeners ever know anything about speech writing, they talk about the catalyst for action, the inciting incident. The inciting incident for me was that when it dawned on me that there was an absence, a gap in our knowledge about women speakers. So many people write the book 
that they need because the book they need doesn't exist. Can you tell us in the introduction to the book that you come through something like 250 anthologies of speeches and a third of them don't include a woman a woman at all and the majority of them barely include women seems like you created the book that was missing in the canon yeah well it is true i i have a little bit of obsessive tendencies i'm a bit of a completionist once i start something i really want to finish it and i started looking in speech anthologies looking for speeches by women and of course i went down that rabbit hole but like all rabbit holes once you get inside it turns out to be this vast complicated interesting world and in this world i discovered that oratory the history of oratory and rhetoric has been something that has been championed and chronicled and collected throughout our nation's history the first one that i looked at was the colombian orator the very famous colombian orator uh, orator which dates from i think it's 1797 it's the famous one that frederick douglas went and bought and then he bought it at a bookstore in baltimore and then um learn to uh craft his public speaking skills uh with that book as his inspiration so that's the first one and then it just goes on from there i collected hundreds of speech anthologies looking 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 to see who were considered the greatest speakers in history not just in the united states but across the world who do who do we consider to be the lionized orators of the past and overwhelmingly preponderance of speakers in that category were men if there were women included they were always the same handful of women i could tick them off for you there was always you know if women were included most of the time they were not but if they were it was always an elizabeth cady stanton or susan b anthony maybe a helen keller maybe um Uh, Elizabeth the first to the troops at Tilburg, Tilbury, um, maybe in in American speeches, maybe an Anita Hill or more recently or Shirley Chisholm, um, but it was always the same hand. Maybe a Jane Adams, but honestly, it was always the same over and over and over. And I had to wonder, were these the only great speakers? I mean, the real the real catalyst was when I pulled down a book by William Sapphire. Some of your listeners might know his name. William Sapphire was a speechwriter for Nixon and Agnew, President Nixon and his vice president Agnew. And in later years he wrote a column for the New York Times about language. I used to read his column all the time and I really revered him. I had a lot of respect for him and he published an anthology of great speeches called Lend Me Your Ears. Of course Lend Me Your Ears comes from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar Friends Roman Countryman Lend Me Your Ears. So I got this volume it's a classic. It's been reissued over and over and over. It's on bookshelves across the country and I opened it up and started counting all the speeches in the collection and there were something like 212 speeches by men and 20 by women. And that that's really when the scales fell from my eyes. I just looked at this table of contents and i thought this can't be the truth there's something else going on here <laughs> so that that's what catapulted me into my current obsession uh with excavating and learning about women speakers of the past 
You referenced a few moments ago that you teach uh, speaking skills. And in the book, you let us know that you'll ask your students to name some famous speeches or the speech givers, and they really stumble on trying to name women who had given famous speeches. And one of the spoken and unspoken messages again and again with all of these anthologies that barely mention women or leave them all altogether is that women didn't speak in public. And your book pretty quickly lets us know that, oh, yes, they did. Uh, they did even more than your substantial volume can include. And that without knowing this, we then aren't really knowing women's history. We aren't really knowing U.S. history. And for women's speech givers today, we're forcing them to reinvent a wheel that already exists. Well, it is it is true that wisdom accumulates, I believe, that wisdom accumulates through the ages and that we are building on the past. Everybody who honors history and wants to know where we came from understands the fundamental idea that we learn from the past and build on the past. But if women's speeches, if women's knowledge, if women's expertise and ideas and lived experience is not captured, then it makes it very hard for us to learn from the women who came before us. So there's this vacuum in history is, uh, is that a great loss to us? The cost is very high. So it really, it really does matter. And I'll say something else about this idea, this very popular notion that women have been silenced in history. To a degree, it is true, but also not true. Because with every silencing, with every measure to restrict women's speech, with every um, social you know, reprobation that comes with women's speech, there was also a resistance against it. In other words, women were told not to speak, they were criticized for not speaking, and still they spoke up. There were always women who, who resisted that silence. So yes, it is true. Women were not allowed to, well, they weren't allowed to vote. They weren't allowed to serve public office at, in, at the very high level. So they weren't giving those kind of speeches. They weren't military leaders. They weren't giving those kind of speeches. They weren't constitutional experts. They weren't giving those kind of speeches, but they were speaking. They were speaking about things that mattered to women. They were speaking in places where women were allowed to speak. Women for a very long time weren't allowed to preach. In all the major denominations, they were very, very slow in allowing women to preach from the pulpit, but still women would speak. They would find places to preach. Women who were called um who felt that they were divinely called to share the world or to the word or to analyze scripture did speak. So that dynamic, that dynamic between silencing and speaking has been active for a, a very long time. You also call our attention to where to look for women's voices and where they might have been recorded. And then to what extent it was preserved, you point us to newspaper accounts where they mention that the woman spoke, but they don't record exactly what she said, and certainly not to the degree that famous men's speeches were verbatim captured in real time and reprinted for the masses. Um, you also point out that more and more of women's writings and speeches are still being discovered. They're in attics, they're in boxes in archives that haven't been fully studied yet. Um, 
And I wondered how much of your own background as a reporter gave you this insight into what should have been in those newspaper accounts, those absences that maybe many of us would read and say, well, it's wonderful that they at least wrote down that she gave this speech. You know all of the holes that are still there in that account. Well, to be clear, it was quite common for newspapers to mention that someone spoke but not quote that person. They would do that with men as well. But it's a matter of degree because overwhelmingly the speeches that were quoted were by men and overwhelmingly women's speeches were not quoted. So, you know, these things aren't black and white. There's always gray, you know, journalists could not replicate or or reproduce the transcript of every speech, but it was more often than not, it was women whose speeches were not recorded. But I do want to make an observation about that. I mean, just think about it. Suppose a woman is going to give a speech Suppose it's the 19th century and we know that a woman's going to give a speech. There's a decision to be made then. First of all, is there going to be a stenographer at the event? If it's a convention given by an organization that has a budget, they might send a stenographer, but they they might not. But then is there going to be a journalist present? Are Are the editors going to send over a journalist to cover the event? Well, if they don't send a journalist over to cover the event, or if the journalist who covers the event doesn't think what the woman is saying is very important, then that journalist, who is almost always a man, would not write down what the woman said, wouldn't quote her, and then her words wouldn't appear in the newspaper the next day. If they didn't appear in the newspaper the next day, they were certainly not going to be quoted in the days and months and years ahead. They certainly were not going to show up in any anthologies. So, of course, it's like a snowball effect, right? That absence becomes a large vacuum. So the initial uh, misstep is when the editor doesn't think what the woman has to say is going to be important in the first place. So it all stems from uh, what we think of today as patriarchal values, that what men did and said and thought was more important than what women did and said and thought. It's, it all starts from that. So you have to believe that women's words, women's ideas, women's knowledge, and women's voices are important in order to devote the resources to recording them. And as I was reading your book and thinking about those holes, I was thinking about how, yes, some women do speak uh, off the cuff, but most have notes, if not the entire speech written out, and how they would have gladly given a copy to the paper. Well, that is true. I'm sure that a lot of them did have transcripts. But you'd be surprised. A lot of the women in my book and other women who were um, impassioned speakers didn't have written out speeches. They spoke extemporaneously. And there's an important reason why. And I'll share it with you because it really is important for all of us today. The more you know your topic and the more you speak about the topic, the easier it is for you to speak and have confidence and the less you need to rely on a written script. It's true for me and it's true for every single person listening to this. So I always say the key to becoming a better speaker, a more confident speaker is number one, know your material, know it cold. And number two, get up and speak about it as much as you can. It doesn't matter whether you're talking to the local Rotary Club or you're speaking to on the Rachel Maddow show or Morning Joe. Know your material and rehearse it. Have lots of opportunities to talk about it. And that's just what these women did. 
they got up and they spoke and then they were able to extemporize. So not in every case was there a transcript. You let us know in the acknowledgments that uh, there was a tremendous amount of support for you in creating this project. You had a Kickstarter. I had a number of people who were, it sounds like beta readers or at least uh, subject experts you could run some things past. Um, can you give us an idea of how long a project like this takes and what something like a Kickstarter can help with? Well, that's that's a very interesting question. I haven't really thought about it um, quite in that way, but I, I started on this project about four years ago. And when I started, I really didn't know anything. I knew something about public speaking, but I knew nothing about the history of women's speech. I really knew almost nothing about suffrage, the long 70 plus year campaign in America for women to get the vote. I just, I kind of barely knew that, as I said, the names Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, but I knew nothing about all the other women of color, black women, Latina women, Asian American women who also spoke for suffrage. It was just a big vacuum for me. So I started learning and reading about it and creating this speech bank, the online speech bank. The book was a project that came out of the speech bank. And the book talks about, shares the history of women's speech from the pre-United States, from 1637, which was the Puritan era, to the present. And that's a lot of history. That's almost 400 years of American history. So to create that book, I had to learn (laughs) a lot of history really quickly. And I'm not a historian. I'm a generalist. So it did require a lot of reading and also relying on, on others for expertise. So I had actually sent out email. At one point, I had to write about the whole controversy around multilingualism in the Spanish Southwest in New Mexico and Arizona in the turn of the century and around the time when New Mexico and Arizona were applying for statehood in the 19-teens and 20s. So I got online and found an expert in the subject and emailed her and asked her if she would get on the phone and talk to me about it and educate me. I mean, that's what a good journalist does. And that's what we should all be doing is not making up stuff, obviously, and not skipping over the stuff that we don't know very well, but relying on experts, reaching out to people, interviewing them and learning from them and incorporating that knowledge into our own work. There's a paragraph towards the end of your acknowledgments that reads like a who's who of the four mothers of women's history. Um, For listeners who want to know maybe where to start with experts if they want to dig deeper on their own. In the end, you chose 75 of these extraordinary speeches. Given how much research you did and how much you were unearthing, was it painful to whittle it down to 75? You gave us a sense a few moments ago of this 400-year span that you wanted to try to represent. Even still, there were a number of choices that had to be made to select the 75. Can you tell us about that process? Oh, yeah. It was not just painful. It was gut-wrenching. It was really gut wrenching. I had a oh, I I was had many a night when I was just tossing and turning because I was so upset that I had to leave out a certain woman. I thought, how could I tell the history of woman's speech without including this woman or that woman? I mean, I could start naming names. I could easily, easily have a volume with a hundred speeches. 
But of course, that would be quite a big book. It would be quite more, you know, a lot more money to produce. And I had to start somewhere. I'll tell you something. When we first started talking about this book, we talked about a book with 35 speeches. And then almost instantly, we went up to 50. And when I did the Kickstarter a year ago, last March, in March 2022, I promoted the book as 50 Great Speeches by American Women. But then when I sat down to actually do the book and I made a spreadsheet and I started putting all of the speeches in the spreadsheet and chronologically, I realized there was no way I could tell this story in, in 50 speeches and also credit the diversity, which uh, is reflected in women's speech. I mean, I knew I needed to have a um, significant number of speeches by black women, by Asian women, by Latino women, by indigenous women, and also women who spoke out for disability rights for, well, in 1972, it was lesbian rights. We would call it now gay rights. Um, Women who spoke out, I included Temple Grandin speaking out for neurodiversity. So like anything, the more you get into it, the more it expands. In the end, it was painful to keep it to 75. Um, But I had to make some choices and that's the job of a curator. You know, every time you walk into a museum exhibit, every time you open a book that's a compilation, it's a um, a reflection of that person's painful selection choices, what goes in and what goes out. And also, I think there was a larger point to be made, you know, about the diversity of voices. I really, and also, I didn't just want, I didn't just want women of one class. I wanted to make sure I had women working class women. I wanted to have selections from women that were well, were or are more well-known and then some unknown women. I have two speeches in this collection that I believe have never been published anywhere else. For the first time, they're being published, to my knowledge, until I learn more. I believe they've never been published anywhere else. And I have at least one that hasn't been published in over a hundred years and like something like 120 years. So I really wanted to, it to be a mix of well-known examples and some that were um, considerably less well-known or not known at all. The back, you list a number of the permissions that you got. Can you give listeners an idea of what that process is like? Yeah, it's a big headache. Cannot just assume that because a speech is older that it is in the public domain. So first I had to research those and find out, were they in the public domain? Then if they weren't, I had to find out who owned the rights. That's a research project in itself. Then you have to reach out to the rights owners and ask them for permission. And then many, some of them gave me the rights for free. They just said, sure, we'd be happy for you to use it. And then I required that they fill out a simple form because I wanted to document that. But others said, no, we'll charge you for it. And some of the charges were quite hefty. So a big chunk of money did go to securing the rights. But I have to say, in no case, in no instance, did I decline to get a speech because it was too expensive. They are Those people are negotiable. They will negotiate with you. And I negotiated some of them down. But I didn't, I could, you know, once I made up my mind, I wanted to have a speech in the collection. It was very hard for me to say, no, I'm not going to do it just because it costs some money. In case you want to know, the most expensive one that I got permission to publish was for the homecoming speech 
by Josephine Baker. That's a speech that she gave when she went back to her hometown of St. Louis in, I think it was the 19, something like 1960s. And the owner of all of Josephine Baker's photographs and materials, um, they own all this material and they, of course, they license it out to movies and other entertainment sources. So that they can afford to charge a lot of money. They charge me $750 to use that speech. So that was a big ouch. Others charged something like, I think one was 500. Some of them were something like 100 or 150 or 200, something like that. But it was, it did amount to a, a significant chunk of money. I have an image on the cover and I had to license that image too. It's a beautiful bust um, in marble of Helen Gahagan Douglas. She was a Democratic senator from California, and she gave a speech in 1950, an anti-McCarthy speech, and it was called My Democratic Credo. It was very famous, and she was a kind of, she was, became a hero to many people for standing up against uh, Joseph McCarthy and his witch hunt. And Isamu Noguchi, the Japanese sculptor, sculpted this bust of her, and I uh, purchased the rights to reproduce that image for the cover of the book. And of course, her speech is in the collection. Thank you for taking us through that. It's often considered hidden curriculum that there are these fees attached to use and that so it's always helpful for listeners to know uh, what really goes behind a nonfiction book. There's concerns that that fiction often doesn't have. In 1933, in the in the Table in the in the book, there's the copyright mark and language indicating that the that the publishers did assert their pub, their copyright rights in 1933. But I did some research and had some people help me, and we could not find that those people actually renewed those rights. And if they didn't actually renew those rights, then I felt comfortable using the material. But it's it's not it's not an easy process. Intellectual property law is very, very complicated. And I caution anybody who's gonna publish and 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 wade into those waters to get expert help. In the book you include two versions of Sojourner Truth's speech. It's a fairly well known speech, but Often people know it by one title and perhaps not by the one that was used at the time. What led to your decision to include both versions and not the one that um, scholars may feel is the correct version? Well, because I, did, I made that choice, obviously, quite deliberately, because the original speech is so famous. It's become so famous in American history you know, ain't I a woman, or some people say, aren't I a woman? And to not include that volume, I, that speech in its original form, I felt would be, it would be skipping over an important piece of American history, but also m even more important, missing out on the opportunity to teach a lesson. I really want this volume to be used by students I want it to be a kind of companion volume to social studies texts and history texts. And I wanted students to understand that history, our understanding of history changes, that it's so important to question our sources and to examine what we think we know and look at it with a fresh face. And that's exactly what Nell Irvin Painter did when she took a look at the 
speak at the version of Sojourner Truth speech, 1851 speech that we all thought we knew and recognize and make public the fact that the old version was the wrong version. So I thought it was an important lesson to include. And, and I thought for, you know, for a number of reasons that both of them merited to be in the book. And also it's very interesting to compare them and to see how, um, how the, how the first version that was publicized misrepresented Sojourner Truth's language and relied on an old caricature of what a black woman would have sounded like at the time. All of the speeches in the book have a short introductory essay. And for example, the Sojourner Truth speech, you include much of what you just shared in the original, in the essay there to explain why you chose to include what um, Professor Painter felt was the wrong version and provided both of them side by side so that people can look at them. Um, as you were writing the essays, it occurs to me that the pandemic was breaking out. How did doing all of this work during, during the pandemic affect your timeline and your access to materials? Well, it, honestly, it didn't really affect my access to materials because so much of what I used is on is online. I used online materials, you know, history, articles, books. I used JSTOR a lot and went and got a lot of articles. But as I said, you know, this is a book about four, almost four hundred years of history, and there's you know there's no way I could even pretend to be an expert on four hundred years of American history. So I had to do a lot of research and reading, but. I did get library books. I used interlibrary loan a lot. My local library will tell you I, I racked up a lot of interlibrary loan fees. And that's why my local librarian's name is in the acknowledgments. But, um, but you know, writing and research are solitary activities. They just are. And if you're going to do that kind of work, you have to be reconciled to the aloneness of it and be okay with it. But now I'm emerging from that period into one in which I'm engaging with people a lot. I'm doing a lot of talks, interviews such as this one, in-person events. And so, you know, you have to be able to navigate those two worlds if you want to devote the time to do the scholarly research and the work in a kind of bubble, in an, you know, in a kind of isolated bubble, but then also step out into the world to promote your work because we all know how important that is. You could write the best book, the most expertly researched book or article, but if no one hears about it and no one knows about it, then it's not going to have an impact. So those two pieces are, are equally important, I believe. I was looking at the part of the book where Willard, uh, her public statement is reproduced. Right, Emma Willard. Yes, and your consideration of what is a woman's speech and the through line of the book of women spoke in perhaps different places than we are looking at and in different ways than we have been told. And broadening the definition of what constitutes a woman's speech. Can you tell us about that and about how Willard fits into this? Right. That's a, that's an interesting question because with Emma Willard, many scholars, I, I'm not, obviously, I have to express a, ca- a caveat. I'm not a Willard Scholar, her statement, her address, I think they call it an address, was published in, I think it was 1819. And if it 
many scholars seem to say to believe that Emma did not deliver it in a spoken form. I read one person who said somebody else read it for her to the New York State Legislature. Somebody else said that she um, submitted it to the governor. So I would not have included that speech in my collection had I not read one scholar who said that she delivered it to some influential legislators. And when I read that, I thought, okay, that gives me permission to include it because at least one scholar seems to think that it was spoken aloud. But Emma Willard herself did not consider public speaking to be part of a woman's remit. She did not teach public speaking. It was not part of her curriculum in her in her school. She really didn't think, I don't think, I don't believe Emma Willard was a suffrage. She didn't talk, never talked about women getting the vote. You know, she wanted women to be educated equal to men. She was deeply resentful personally that she couldn't go to school like her, like the other young boys, like her brother. So she wanted women to be educated citizens of the nation, but she did not promote women as speakers. But I included that because in all good faith, I believe there was at least a reasonable chance that she would have delivered that out loud. And I should note that other times in her life, she did, she did speak. She, I put that in the introduction. I have in my archive, a speech that she gave on setting up a school and academy for women in Greece. She was very involved in the kind of pro Hellenic movement and wanted to promote uh, institutes for um, women's education abroad and including in Greece. So I know she did speak at least some of the time, but with that particular document, um, there is a question mark over it. You shared with us some of the challenges of doing this book. We've touched a bit on how difficult it can be to do the research on who has rights and what's fair use and all of the intellectual property laws that can come into play when you're uh, using nonfiction in your research and you want to quote it directly, were there some other challenges? Were there other challenges? The challenges, I would say, were figuring out which speeches rightly belonged in the collection, getting authentic transcripts. That was difficult. Sometimes there are two or three or four different versions floating around and you have to figure out which one is the most legitimate one making sure all different kinds of voices were represented. I mentioned that. And then, of course, I couldn't reproduce the speeches in full. I had to edit them. I had to cut them down. Not all of them. Whenever, When they were relatively short, I included them all. But for the longer speeches, I had to excerpt them. That was painful. So there were challenges you know, all along the way. But I'll give you one example. I mentioned earlier that there were some two speeches that I know of that have never before been reproduced. One of them is the speech in 1947 by Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn was in the leftist camp politically. And that was, by the way, that was another anti-McCarthy speech. She spoke at Gilmore Stadium in Los Angeles, and it was an event to promote the presidential candidacy of um, Henry Wallace. And her speech To my knowledge, it's never been reproduced. If you go on YouTube, you'll find two different audio snippets of it, but they're not the whole complete speech. So I had to try and find a transcript of this. I never found a transcript of the speech, 
but it turned out in an audio lab, I believe it was in Wisconsin, I'd have to check the book, but I did find an audio recording of the speech. And from that audio recording, I made the full transcript. But that's a lot of legwork. It's just a lot of digging, you know, sleuthing. And look, research is fun, but it's also quite tedious. And you have to um, adhere to very high standards of fidelity. I mean, you want this, this is a historical, this is a book that purports to tell the, you know, the truth about all this. And I wanted to be very, very faithful to the truth. I hired a fact checker to check all the dates and all the venues of the speeches because human beings, people make mistakes, including me. I'm, I'm, I hate human, I always say I hate human error, especially when it's mine. So I wanted everything to be as absolutely accurate as possible. And that, that's a lot of work. We all know that's a lot of work. Were there any particular surprises you found in your research that you'd like to share with us? Were there any particular surprises? I think the biggest, really the biggest surprise is one that we've talked about, which is the volume just the sheer volume of American women's speeches. I mean, let's go back to the various early earliest days. I will say one insight that I gained was that in many indigenous people's culture, these were the original inhabitants of America. Many of these cultures were matrilineal or, or if not strictly matrilineal, they gave women political visible power. And in many of these communities and tribes, women did speak, but almost none of these tribes had written language. So we don't have recordings, certainly not in English language, of what they said. But if somebody were to ask me who were the earliest speakers, women speakers in America, without question, I would say indigenous women. They were speaking. And I have one example, the example from 1781 from Nanyahi, a there are words that she used in a treaty negotiation with um, treaty negotiators representing the U.S. government. And there are some other, a handful of other examples in which a Native American woman would speak and, you know, an Anglo person would write down or translate what she said. And we have a few of those transcripts, mostly in like the Library of Congress. But the preponderance of Native American women voices was a big surprise to me and has really informed my thinking. And then the other one I would say is the awareness that some of the earliest speakers in America were itinerant preachers, whether they were evangelists from the evangelical tradition or free will Baptists or Quakers or Congregationalists. There were women who traveled around the country along the back roads and traveled and spoke. They spoke to audiences that were white and black and mixed. Sometimes they went into prisons and spoke into prison populations. There were dozens of these speakers, and we know a lot of their names. Some of them were white, some of them were black. We know their names and we don't have their speeches. They just have not, they just were not recorded. And I live in hope that one day some in some attic or basement somewhere, some of transcript or a diary or archive, some of those will will reappear. But we know these women were speaking. They do, We just don't have their words. And to me, that's a great loss of our heritage. It's a loss of our patrimony. And it's also a loss of an opportunity to 
inspire us and motivate us today to to put our voices into the world and speak out for the country that we want to live in and the world that we want to occupy. I think overall you feel confident that we're, we're going to recover more of women's speeches, whether it's that the old notes are in attics or in boxes that haven't been opened yet or are hidden in plain sight that we're going to recover even more. Absolutely. And, you know, every day more and more newspapers are being digitized. That's true um, in this country and it's true around the world. So I subscribe uh, for a very long time to newspapers.com, which is a wonderful, wonderful resource, but it's not the only one. There's lots of other archives around and every day they're adding more old papers um, to them. So one day when I'm past this chapter in my life, I might subscribe to a few more of those and start to hunt for other speeches by women because newspapers are a tremendous resource. Newspapers, you'd be surprised at how much was captured in newspapers. So yes, I'm fully confident that more and more speeches are going to be come to light. And, you know, it takes a historical perspective to know which ones really, um, really should be read and circulated and praised. But I have no doubt that somebody coming along 10 years from now or 20 years from now will have much more material to choose from and might make entirely different selections. When you weigh everything out and do that process of curation that I was talking about earlier, the curatorial process, you'll have many more speeches to choose from. And we might have a a very different collection. Maybe premature to ask you this, but given how much couldn't go in this volume, is there a thought there may be a companion volume in the future? I do have another book I want to do, and I'll just talk about it very briefly. For a very long time, for the last few years, I've been creating a vast spreadsheet. And it is like a calendar concept. It's not a calendar, but it's got every day of the year in it. So January 1, January 2, January 3. And for every day of the year, I have a historic speech given by a woman. And of course, many days I have many, many speeches. Some days I have 15 speeches given that day, and others I have only two given that day. But I'm constantly adding to it. And I want to do a book that says, that makes the argument that every day in history is a day that a woman gave a historic speech. Every day in history is a day to honor a woman somewhere in the world in the past who stepped up, came forward, and used her voice. So that's that's the next book I have in mind. Thank you so much for being here today, Donna Rubin, and sharing your new book, Speaking While Female, 75 Extraordinary Speeches by American Women. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you're listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.